What's up, everybody? Welcome. Welcome to the Artist of Data Science Happy Hour. It is Friday, October 15th, 2021. I'm your host, Harpreet Sahota. Super excited to have all of you guys here. Hopefully you've had an amazing week. Uh, I, for one, have been sick the entire week. Um, I probably shouldn't be drinking beer just um, because of the sheer volume of acetaminophen that I have ingested. But I'm going to do it anyways because, you know, I'm feeling a little bit better today. Feeling a little bit better. And for that, I celebrate because my health is getting better. Confucius once said that, that a healthy man wants a thousand things. A sick man just wants one thing. And uh, that is absolutely true. Cool words have never been said. I hope you guys got a chance to tune into the podcast episode that I released um, just on Friday with Eric Oaken. Uh, so this, this episode was actually the very first conversations episode that I ever recorded. I actually recorded this episode well over a year ago. It was about September 2020 when I recorded this episode. Um, so I'm interested to go and listen back at it to see uh, how much I've changed since then. I wonder what kind of shit I was saying in that episode. Um, so I'm excited to have all you guys here. A lot of cool stuff happened this week. Uh, you know, I was on the uh, Data and Impact podcast hosted by community member uh, Christian Steinert. So thank you very much for having me on the show. Christian uh, had a cool episode release with uh, uh, that I saw on the Ken's Nearest Neighbor podcast with both Ken G and Mark Freeman. I thought that was super cool to see that happen, man. Epic collaboration there. Um, a lot of other cool stuff too, man, happened this week. Um, was uh, did two presentations this week, one at the ML Conf that was just earlier today, and did a uh, in house kind of presentation for our house list at Comet ML. And so that was uh, that was a lot of fun, man. Hopefully, you guys got a chance to check that out. If not, don't worry, I'll be giving presentations for uh, for quite some time. Shout out to everybody in the room. What's up, Ben Taylor, Ken G, Russell Willis, Eric Sims, Auntie's in the background, Makiko's in the building. So is Alexandra. Super excited to see all you guys here. So, man, I got a question for you guys. Let's open it with this. I'm, I'm wondering what, what, what does it mean for a data scientist to be creative? And is creativity a necessary skill for success as a data scientist? Love to get your thoughts on this. Let's go to Ben Taylor first. And after Ben Taylor, go to Kenji, then Eric Sims. And anybody else wants to chime in please do let me know um so i think there's a lot of people in the data science community that are not creative and and i'll, I'll give an example so if i said elderly slip and fall let's go fix this we're going to go do this initiative to fix elderly slip and fall with ai most people would say we're going to do video cameras in the hallway we're going to look at you you're going to fall we're going to build an ai model and i would say the creativity with that is horse blinders, like they're navel gazing. Uh, and I think the distinction I'd say, don't think like AI, don't think like some narrow scope perspective, think like a human. So what would a human do? Well, a human would have, you'd have lots of cameras, but more importantly, a human would be reactive to, oh, it's 8 a.m. You didn't wake up for breakfast. I have a problem with that. Normally you're here for breakfast or you went to the bathroom and you've been there for uh, 30 minutes, I'm getting concerned, two hours, I'm very concerned. And so I think two times, too many times in data science, it's extremely narrow, and, which I, I don't know why that is because data scientists are typically really smart, but I see a lot of data scientists that they see the world like this rather than seeing the world like this. So 
Uh, I'm curious how other people react to that. That is creative is is a lack of creativity a problem in the data science space, and why do so many people take the approach of hot dog, not hot dog? I'm going to do a cancer classifier rather than taking the approach of like, what would a human do? I'm going to take all the data that matters. I'll be quiet to that. Yeah, it's a it's a good addition to that question. Let's go to uh, let's go to Ken G. Uh, and after Kenji, we can go to Eric and then Russell. And anybody else wants to uh, jump in on this one, please do. So the opening question is, um, it's about creativity in data science. What does it mean to be creative in data science? And is creativity a required skill for success in data science? Also, shout out to everybody else that just joined into the room, Gina and uh, Truck, you guys can go for it. So I'm going to make the bold statement that I believe creativity is integral to the success of most fields, particularly data science, right? But I think the way that we define creativity is something that 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 varies greatly, right? Like there's different levels of creativity. Like you can be very creative in the model training process, right? You can be very creative in the feature engineering process. You can be creative in the questions you ask or the ideation process, or, you know, as Ben described, the way that you approach certain problems. And I think that in order to be successful in this domain, you have to be creative in at least one of those areas, but most people are not creative in like all of those areas or multiple of those areas. And I think that something we should all seek to do better is think about, okay, where, where is our creative strength, right? Like I personally think that when I'm explaining things, I come up with creative ways to view them, uh, analogies or, or different ways to present information that would help someone else digest it, right? Like that is a creative strength of mine. On the other side, a lot of the times when I'm um, when I'm doing a, a, like actual data science work, I find myself doing a lot of the same things over and over again because they've worked historically or whatever it might be. I'm not flexing the creative muscles as much as I probably should be doing. They could lead to greater insight, a better understanding of the problem, or it could potentially even show that the way I've done things in the past was not a good way to do them to begin with. So I think that, you know, I would answer this question in a really annoying way with another question is like, how do we define this creativity? And, you know, are there better ways for us to practice and exercise creativity in the different uh, compartments of our life or the different compartments of our work? Very good. Ken, thank you so much. Appreciate that. Um, there are excellent comments and excellent, you know, things to think about. Uh, Eric, let's hear from you. Then, then uh, Russell as well. Then Makiko's no filter response. I want to hear that as well. And then, by the way, uh, everybody listening on LinkedIn, on YouTube, in the chat here, uh, please do let me know if you got a question. Just, uh, just comment or write right here into the chat that you got a question. I'll add you to the queue. Go for it, Eric. So I would say that creativity is oh man i got the live stream going on on this other monitor gotta turn that off okay so creativity to me is approaching something in just the way that's different from the people who are in your immediate vicinity right and so because you could be a tremendously uncreative let's say artist compared to the artists that you maybe spend most of your time around. And then you put yourself in a different situation and all of a sudden you are tremendously creative because you bring a perspective that nobody else in that group brought. And hopefully that can even like unlock creativity or new thought uh, 
previously unhad thoughts with um, other people, you know, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you uh, are, I guess, artistic, you know, we usually kind of say it like that, but I think it's just bringing something, bringing your own thing to that environment. And so that's why I think it's really one of some of the best advice I ever got from a previous boss was to, he just called it dig your own job. And so I was like, Oh, dig your job, like enjoy it. He's like, no, dig your job as in you're all here being, you know, analysts or data scientists or whatever you are, but like find your spot, dig into it and don't let anybody get you out of it because you are the best at that thing. And you bring that to the table and then you can just get, get really good at it and be that, that awesome person that helps lift the team with what you bring. So that's kind of my take on creativity. But at the same time, I also just like coming up with goofy and original things that maybe people haven't thought of before because it's just fun. I love these responses. Thank you very much, Eric. Uh, Ken and uh, Makiko doing the Aloha Friday. Ken's asking, where's my shirt? Dude, it's uh, it's full on winter here now in Winnipeg. It's like 48 degrees, cold and rainy outside. It is firmly cashmere uh, season for me. Aloha is a mindset. That's true. Uh, that's pre- true. Not, not a, uh, not a temperature. Yeah. Come on. Yeah, that's true. I got to find some uh, floral sweaters. I bet I could find some of those. Same with the Kuna Matata. There you go, man. Straight up. Makiko, give us your, give us your, uh, your hot take on, on, on the question at hand. Remember folks, we're talking about creativity and data science. What does that mean? Is that something, um, important to success uh let's go to makiko then russell and then gina i see you have a comment here i'd love for you to share that with us yeah so i think uh so what i think creativity in, in data science or lack of i i'm gonna be honest i'm thinking adults uh because kids and teens are definitely well before it's speed now of them they're remarkably creative um and intelligent and funny and all that but i think um in terms of like the rest of us older folks <laughs> Um, I feel like a lack of creativity honestly comes down to like empathy and world experiences. And this, and you see this a lot, I feel like, for example, on the product side where, I don't know, you know, like people either don't dog food their own product or, or whatever. And so, you know, so their users will complain about like, we can't do this or it's not like flexible. It's not user-friendly, like the, you know, whatever. And the engineer will go like, no, 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 it's perfect. Like it's, it's built like this. It's like, have you, you know, Mr. Or Mrs. or a, you know, person engineer, have you actually tried like using your software? Because it's it's not pleasant. Um, or things, for example, like, and this can kind of be one of those challenges if you're, you know, doing modeling or analysis in a domain that you have no experience with. Um, like, for example, medical or sports. If, I mean, if you tried tossing me at a baseball problem. Um, I'm sure I would screw it up and Ken would have lots of things to say about it. Like, why didn't you try this? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? Because sports to me is like you throw a ball at someone, maybe at their face, maybe across the field, who knows? Um, but you'll run into that. And I, I think it's, it's one of these weird things where like, it feels like the solve would be to just like practice empathy, try out different life experiences, try doing work in a different domain, try doing a Kaggle competition, you know, whatever. Right. But like, literally just expose yourself to something new and take yourself out of your like current status quo. And I don't think a lot of people do that because of like the whole explore and exploit trade-off, right? Like they kind of want to stay in the pocket of what they're really, really comfortable with, but that means that they end up missing out on like the, the big value opportunities, which a lot of times are out of your comfort zone. So 
I know it's it's not a hot take; it's a lukewarm take, but um. I like it. I like it though, Makiko. Thank you so much, um, Russell. Let's let's hear from you on this, and then Alexander, if you'd like to jump in here. Um, I'm sorry, sorry. We will go to Russell, then Gina, then if Alexander wants to uh, jump in, I'd love to hear from you. Also, shout out to uh, Dylan. Good to see you here again, uh, my friend. It's been a while. Joe Reese is also in the building. Uh, what's up, Joe Reese? Uh, Russell, go for it. Then we'll go to Gina, then Alexandra. And then, by the way, anybody listening, like I said, we're taking questions. So if you got questions, let me know. I'll add you to the queue. Thank you, Aubrey. Evening, everybody. Um, so I, I agree with everybody's statement so far on creativity. I put two comments in the chat. Uh, the first was saying creativity isn't essential for anything, but it certainly enhances and can accelerate most tasks or, or actions or anything that you need to do. But if we take uh, creativity as like a dictionary um, uh, translation, it, it means to create something. So if you if you write some code, you're creating it, therefore you're creative to a certain extent. So I think Ken's earlier comments about exactly what creativity is were very pertinent. Um, so my, my first comment was taking creativity to be, you know, to the, to the extent, you know, a really creative person that can come up with some out-of-the-box thinking, okay? Uh, and then my next comment was saying that uh, creativity is generally inversely proportional to orthodoxy. So if you learn one way to do something and you do it that same way every time, that's a status quo, that's the orthodox approach, you could be deemed to be low creativity. Uh, if you change it up and you bring learnings from something else into it, which may bring good or bad results, but you're doing something different uh, and can learn from all of the positive um, aspects from that, then I would, I would deem that creative. So say, for example, you weren't talking about data science, say we were talking about um, you know, cooking your, your evening meal in the kitchen, you know, you cook the same thing week on week. You, you'd not be very creative. You cook different meals uh, each day of the week, you'd be a little more creative. You cook different meals every day for, say, a month, a bit more creative. Then you know, you mix up those meals. Every time you cook the same meal, you throw something different in it, you know, a different herb, a different seasoning, a different ingredient, you just change stuff up, you're even more creative. So there's definitely a, a scale of creativity. And in my opinion, creativity will, will help everything, even coding. So as I say, if you've, if you've used one functional command uh, to get a, a certain return in some code, and one day you, you shake it up and try something else, you may find that you can come up with the same result in, say, 10 steps rather than 100 steps uh, and find that it's going to you know, really improve the efficiency and the performance of the model. So creativity there, I think, definitely enhances, but the, the, the bare bones basic creativity will get you by. Um, it'll just be a bit more boring, should we say. Thank you very much, Russell. Uh, Gina, let's hear from you. Then after Gina, we'll go to... Uh... Alexandra. Yeah, hi. Um, great to be here again. This is my second visit to Data Science Happy Hour. Um, I have a lot of thoughts on creativity, um, but let me just limit it to a couple and kind of uh, piggybacking off of uh, Russell's answer. Um, so I think a lot of times, like related to what Makiko said and then uh, you know, also clarified that, of course, you know, children are often creative because no one's told them you can't do this or that until they tell them, oh, that's stupid or that's not the right way to do it or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, you know, along the lines of what has previously been said, 
I think, um, you know, aside from all the other influences, school, family, et cetera, organizations, the organization, both the organization you're in and the organizations maybe that you've been in in the past, people are going to, re- you're going to respond. Everybody is going to respond to the, the, the incentives that are presented to them. And so um, uh, stepping aside from data just to, for a minute, I can tell you I've been in a number of organizations and I've almost kind of. Uh, Gina, you somehow went mute. You want to unmute yourself? You're right in the middle of saying something awesome. Okay, there we go. Sorry about that. That was odd. Yeah, yeah, maybe Siri muted me or something. (laughs) But um, yeah, I think it depends on the organization you're in. And what I was saying is stepping away from the data science side just for a moment. I've been in organizations where I feel like you, you, like I've been kind of whipsawed in a way. One organization, like almost mandated, you know, aggressive might be the wrong word, but some organizations, you know, almost require that. If you don't speak up, you've got nothing to contribute. Other organizations are so much more consensus-based and having come from one organization that was very much the former and then going to one that was very much the latter, I made the mistake early on of uh, maybe, you know, expressing my opinions a little too forcefully. And I don't think that got me off on the right foot with a lot of people. And so I think I just, I want to put that out there. Sorry, I got a little background noise. Um, To consider that and in your current organizations, please um, encourage people to be creative. And if people aren't encouraged to be creative, then maybe they're not going to be very creative. So it's a combination of, you know, realizing that sometimes if people don't seem creative, it might be because they were, that was stifled for them in the past. And so I guess be mindful of what incentives are put in front of people, because I think a lot of people have creativity, but it's a matter of whether or not they were rewarded for expressing it. So I guess what I'm, the the long, the short answer is, you know, let's, don't assume that people aren't creative just because, you know, maybe they don't initially seem to have the most creative answers, even for what they might post in their GitHub or, or, you know, on their profiles, they might um, be timid about putting something out there because maybe they believe that, you know, they need to show like, look, I've got down the basics. I I can solve these types of problems. You know, in, in music, it's kind of the equivalent of, man, I've got my scales down. You know, I've got my arpeggios. I've got, you know, all these basic kind of building blocks that show you, you, you can at least, you can at least do the basics or, or even technically do more than the basics, but you're not quite at jazz improv. Absolutely love that, Gina. Thank you so much. Uh, let's hear from uh, Alexander on this and then Coast of I see you have your hand up. Is that to, uh, to speak on this topic as well? Awesome. So we'll go to uh, Alexandra, then we'll go to Costa. But then Greg has a uh, question that was left over from last week about um, compilers. Uh, so Greg, if you want to type out the question, put it in the chat so we can prep people about compilers. Um, Alexandra, go for it. Yeah, I was just going to add, you know, I'm coming from the perspective of being a master's student right now. And I think for me, the biggest hindrance in the opportunity to be creative is really just time. I think that a lot of times we have the the innate ability to express that creativity, but then all of a sudden when 
the professor assigns you five more projects that are due at the end of the week and a teammate comes in with a data set that they've used before and a project idea ready to go, it's really easy to kind of jump on the bandwagon and just go with the low hanging fruit of what's easy, especially from from a college perspective. Um, So I think one thing that I'm really trying to prioritize in the creative data science process that I'm going through is just kind of almost giving myself time blocks saying if they present a a project idea or a proposal today, I'm not allowed to even answer that question until tomorrow or the next day or the end of the week. And sometimes that's not always feasible. We don't always have the, the pleasure of extra time. But when it is, I think just giving yourself that space, that mental capacity to think about problems, it, it really helps for me. That's so important, man. Like that time and space thing. Like uh, lately, I just haven't had much time or space. And I just feel like I just haven't had good ideas. Like my ideas have just not been very creative let's say that uh let's go to a uh coast dub right i think that's who's next in line coast dub and then um and then we'll go to greg's question on uh compilers yeah alexander you touched on a really good point there about giving yourself time excuse me giving yourself time to be creative i think that's really important but there is another side of it when when we complain about our teams aren't being creative enough in the workplace or we're not able to be creative enough. A lot of it comes really down to uh, have we structured the team properly with the right variety of skill sets? Now, if as a team of like four data scientists, you're dealing with a particular problem in one domain space and all of you have the same background experience, you're not, you're all going to approach the problem typically in a quite similar manner, right? Like where I find some of the benefit is as like, because I come from a bit of a weird background to data science, more from the robotics and vision side of things. I try to apply a different lens to things uh, that say someone who's not from a robotics background might, right? So if we're able to bring our experiences from different areas of life into our problem solving process, what we basically rely on is what they call synthesis level thinking, right? And, and, And that's something that comes from a combination of time spent in a domain and time spent in multiple domains. So when we're structuring our teams, if we want to be creative in data science, We've got to structure our team so that what I bring to the table is significantly different to what someone else brings into the table, right? So it really does come down to team structure. And then, of course, like Alexander said, giving them the space and like Gina said, giving them the leash to do it, to be creative. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you guys for participating in the opening question. A lot of great nuggets here. Uh, comment coming in from LinkedIn from uh I'm in there saying this is there's definitely a price to pay when it comes to creativity that is time and effort and with not much guarantee on result while our current work culture is the result is result oriented does not support scope for creativity uh, it was nice to know that google gives its employees 20 percent of their time for creative projects and many of google's great projects came from these side projects yep that's absolutely true um <clears throat> we'll go to uh greg's uh, question about compilers but before we get to greg's question about compilers uh, the other awesome news I want to share with you guys this week is I just heard that our community member, uh, Antonio, uh, and his wife just brought a uh, baby boy into the world. So congratulations, Antonio. Um, go for it, Greg. Uh, I put uh, my questions in the in the chat here. I mean, it's about, um, you know, having someone explain to me what compilers are, um, who in the data science team should know about them? Is it the ML engineer? And how can they, what are the best practices to make sure that these ML models are built to uh, to be optimized 
from a uh, sourcing, uh, you know, uh, processing perspective, uh, or is it applicable only, or should I worry only about it for edge cases? Uh, where, uh, you know, I read I read Chip Huyen's, uh article about this, but uh, anyone who has some uh, uh, insights about compilers would be super helpful, uh, especially like uh, things like you know, are we going to see companies, you know, design their own chips uh, to optimize, you know, specific uh, for specific use cases, whether it does deep neural network or things like that. I know Mikiko, I'm happy uh, you're here already, uh, ready to, to rock and roll. So, Mikiko, yeah, can you break it down? And also just said, uh, just, you know, explain like I'm five, like what is compilers? What's their relationship to machine learning as well? Uh, that's Greg's question. Yeah, so uh, to be honest, I actually might not be the best person to describe compilers versus interpreters, mainly because I feel like, so at, at a high level, like compilers, they uh, take source code and put them into machine code. Um, and then interpreters, which then still has to be like repackaged into another stage. And then interpreters kind of go from source code to like the output. Um, so they kind of can just run the program. Um, so a book I'd recommend actually that I picked up recently is Crafting Interpreters by Nystrom. Um, it's actually a really, really delightful read. And for me personally, I'm trying to get back into the fundamentals. Uh, I guess my question is in a way is like, is how to like how deep into the nuts and bolts does your team need to be in the sense that, so even in, in like my company right now, like we're really kind of trying to figure out where do machine learning engineers like begin and end? Um, especially like in terms of how we navigate, uh, for example, like test, like software testing at scale. That's like a big thing we're trying to figure out right now. Is that something that like the data scientists should be writing? Is that something that like the ML engineers should be writing? Or is that something that should be like on the data infra, infra side? Like how much of it should be automated versus sort of handcraft? Um, so, I mean, and in terms of kind of like who would need to know that, know like about compilers, I feel like. For me, it, part of it depends on like what kind of level of tooling you're building. So, for example, if you're building, um, if you're building like in-house developer tooling um, that needs to be really proprietary, you probably do want engineers who have a really good understanding of things like how to craft compilers and interpreters. Um, what languages should you be using? Um, what are the sort of like trade-offs and kind of keeping up with that? Um, things like environment man environment management, package dependency management. Um, the engineers should definitely kind of know those things, but it kind of just depends on like what level of abstraction your ML engineering team is operating at. Because some ML engineering teams, they tend not, so for example, um, like my team, I feel like in some ways we're sort of mid to low level where we have to really care about things like dependency, ma like dependency management, environment, um, setting up the environments for like the data scientists because we're essentially providing in-house developer tooling, but we're not necessarily going so far as to like, um, like totally craft things, crafting, craft things from scratch. Um, we still operate at a fairly like high level of abstraction, I would say. Um, but some places, for example, like I imagine if you're like Waymo or Tesla, or you're doing anything self-driving, um, that would probably be much more of a concern. Um, especially if you're dealing with like sort of more kind of real time. 
but I would say like it just in general, kind of like the question of, you know, who, who in like, so in, in the, like the supply chain of ML, like who does what, I think a lot of those boundaries do tend to be a little bit sort of like gray. And it's, it's, I think a very big discussion at most companies, like who does what, do you do the engineer? Do you like do the ML engineers take care of the engineering? And when we say take care of the engineering, are they doing infra? Are they doing like in-house developer tooling? Are they doing customer facing stuff? So I do think that's like an active conversation. Yeah. Uh, let's hear from, from you on these uh, compilers. Joe, do you got any uh, insight? Joe or Ben, any insight on, on compilers? Uh, Kosev, go for it. Yeah, um, I guess the other thing it kind of depends on is what what's the um, software stack you're, you're, sorry, what's the hardware stack you're working on, right? Like if you're working on, on cloud computer devices, then a lot of it does get abstracted away from you because you are relying on things like G uh, GCP and AWS. But on the other hand, for example, when, when I was doing uh, machine learning on, on a robotic system, we had to be a little bit more mindful of what the actual chipset was that was going on like the, on the UAV, right? Uh, that's slightly different. So you need to start to understand a little bit of that more. But I didn't have to understand that as much. It was more the guys creating the chips. For example, in Australia, there's a company called Zalient, and they basically make, um, they basically leverage some neuromorphic uh, computing chips and stuff like that. I'm not fully clear on what they do, but they make vision specific hardware. And that embedded hardware basically takes whatever TensorFlow or PyTorch uh, machine learning models I've created and can basically run that in a more efficient manner, right? And it's the same thing that, that NVIDIA is doing with TensorRT and the Jetson packages and stuff like that. So the guys creating those, um, the software layers between that specific embedded hardware and what I'm doing with my uh, Python models, they're probably the people that really need to understand the depths of how far the compiler impacts the performance of your network, right? So we're starting to see that separation of skills. Like if you rewind two years ago, it was kind of like, hey, who understands embedded and understands a bit about ML? I'm sure you can do the job, but we're starting to see people specialize a little bit more where people like I'm really good at embedded programming for the vision space, designing for the ML pipelines. And you're seeing a couple of companies come up with that. And, and obviously like Nikiko said, your self-driving cars, uh, you know, self-driving industry is really driving that in a big way. Um, so we're starting to see that kind of split off as another kind of niche set of skills. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know whether most data scientists or ML engineers would deal with it at that depth. But would, but would you say that your, your knowledge of the equipment available, let's say you, 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 take, you take cloud out of the way, because cloud most likely will take care of that for you. But cloud can also hook you up with a, with a hefty cost because of the processing uh, uh, on their platform, right? So if you could, would you say that knowing, understanding the capacity from a hardware perspective will influence what kind of models you would select uh, to build for your use cases and deploy uh, if cost was something that you're really worried about? And um, as a constraint, I think the understanding what the hardware does can influence how you deploy or what you deploy, right? Yeah, I'm, look, I'm, I mean, I sh I'm sure it will, but at this stage, the maturity that the industry is at, it's less a cost constraint. For, I'm, I'm talking about self-driving and autonomous robotics here, right? That industry is so young and so inherently expensive to begin with anyway, 
that it's less of a cost constraint exercise and more of a do we even have the capabilities yet kind of exercise. Like we're still trying to get object detectors that can deal with 250 objects in the image in real time at 60 frames per second, right? And still have the kind of model accuracy that you need to keep people safe. So the first thing is let's get to that and then we look at cost optimization. So yeah, obviously it will eventually come into a cost question into whether you go for some, like whether you need to know that or whether you rely on abstractions like in GCP. And it's still unclear. The bigger reason that we don't use GCP as often on mobile robotics is, for example, if I put a robot underwater, you're not getting internet. Plain and simple. You're just not getting internet. So you need to rely on being able to use your local GPU or use a TX2 or some other kind of specialized hardware for it, right? So that's kind of where the decision point is at right now. But that'll change as the industry matures, right? So cool. Joe, go for it. Also, that was man, the stuff is going way over my head. Uh definitely got a lot to to compilers are good for people to know um if you're touching code i don't think it hurts like in python for example right understanding how uh, bytecode is created and executed like that's that doesn't hurt you right and like when is it appropriate to use c to drop down into c for primitives or, or to use like the jvm a java a virtual machine so I, I think these lower level things are something that data scientists eventually should know i don't know that it's necessary like knowing compilers isn't going to make you like a data scientist out of the gate, but I think it's going to make you a far better one for sure. And just knowing how your code should execute, um, you know, especially in constrained environments, uh, um, you know, we kind of talked about. So, but yeah, I, I don't know. At a certain point, I think it's just certain things that you should know um, in general, just basic computer science uh, and algorithms and how that translates into bytecode, for example, right? And even diving into just how, to, how does assembly work? Right, like uh, you know, the primitive language, um, you know, for, for machine code. Like, I don't think that hurts you at the end of the day to know how instruction sets are, um, you know, how it's performed. You know, you write Python, drops out of Python bytecode, and it drops down to assembly. Like, how does that work? Like, that to me is, it's, it won't hurt you. Yep. But again, it's like, it's not something you're going to come across your day to day job, but it's sort of like understanding why why do doctors spend you know spend so much time understanding anatomy? It's not like you're going to come across this stuff every day, but you kind of do so yeah kind of just so to me it's kind of like a, it seems like it's a good case use case for ml engineers right so if they're uh, uh trying to run their processing uh on the edge edge uh, devices and things like that so it looks like they have they, they need to have a an understanding of uh what device to use or what i'm sorry what hardware to use uh, on that hedge device for compatibility. I think I think that article was very uh, helpful for me uh, that TPN uh, wrote. So uh, thanks for your responses. I know Mikiko, you got some more I'd like to hear. Well, it's just, it's funny, like it, depending on what teams or organizations you talk to, um, saying like the the statement that, well, okay, there, the question of how, what skills should, how engineering, heavy should data scientists be and what skills constitute engineering is an oddly controversial <laughs> uh, discussion. I, I've, I've found in a couple circles because um, yeah, it's funny. We're, we're kind of coming up against something like, you know, in, in some places a uh, conversation about like testing and testing standards and um, things like that. Apparently people have very, very strong opinions as to who that belongs to. Um, so I imagine if 
in those same groups if we were like, you know, it'd be helpful if you learned like some more lower level stuff. It would just be madness, war, bloodshed, and tears. Just to butt in there for a second, Mikiko, how much do you reckon that is more due to the history of uh, the actual skill sets belong to people? And how much is it more belonging to the way we perceive organizational structure? Like we need to have an organizational structure where there's the test engineering group, the ML guys and the infrastructure guys versus can there be a more fluid understanding of how we operate with different skill sets? Yeah, and I'd actually love to hear Joe's take on this um, because I, I feel like in some... So years ago, right, we had the like the full stack data science unicorn. And there was this idea that regardless that like the only real data scientist was one who was like end to end had to know like 100 million things. And uh, and they were the only people who deserved to be data scientists. Right. I, and that almost was a paradigm like, you know, what, like just five, 10 years ago. I mean, it, it wasn't that long this. ago. Right. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we went from that to like, okay, everything should be like hyper-specialized and especially in bigger companies, you just can't get away from like hyper-specialized. Right. But I feel like there should be something a little bit more in between. And I'm not sure why in some places it's just so volatile. There's a lot of gatekeeping though, right? (laughs) Organizations, people want to protect their turf. I think it's just kind of how it is. Um, I always used to make the joke that like, uh, data scientists were like the, the crossfitters of data, especially full stack ones where they're just kind of a uh, mediocre at everything. Um, like, uh, but I, it's changing, I think, to your point. Specialization does occur now. Um, but it depends on the data maturity of a company, right? And so, um, but I think, yeah, it doesn't hurt to know, I, I think, of the primitives of each um, area of data, really. I think it only makes you better. So understanding, if you're a data engineer, you should understand how databases work, for example, at a good level. Like that, you know, I just think that's necessary, but um, it's a tricky one. I don't know that it's going to be solved anytime soon, unfortunately. Maybe we'll solve it here tonight. Who knows? But I kind of doubt it. What's so, that, what pushed you to, to get that book, Mikiko? Like uh, you said you, you said in the comment, you just purchased a, a book about compilers. What, uh, what was the pusher there? Yeah. So, uh, you know, because I'm not already just slamming my brain with a bunch of stuff, right. With the GCP studying and, um, trying to get better at Jenkins and Kubernetes. Right. Cause I don't, I don't have enough stuff I'm shoving in my brain. I think part of, part of it was like a recognition that, and, and this is really funny because at some companies, right. The ML engineering function is really data scientist plus, and in other places, uh, it's, re- it's considered engineering. Um, and they're like, they're engineers that can happen to talk shop ML, right? Um, and I think for me, I made a very, in- I made what I felt like was a very informed decision away from data science to focus more on the engineering side. But I also recognize that like, I have a lot of gaps in my skill set, which come up in like really weird ways. So for example, like we we maintain essentially in inside insider developer tooling for our data science, right? So I can speak to them very well. But when something comes up in our tooling, um, you know, and I'm troubleshooting, and then it's like, oh, well, there was this dependency like issue that then impacted um, like the environment that we were using and, and all these other things. Like I do find that I can follow along, but 
then I end up having to, I don't quite have like the conceptual underpinnings. And so I'm like, well, you know, my company has a really, really uh, generous educational stipend. Um, so, you know, and that, and also recognizing that I haven't, I've never really taken any sort of formal computer science courses. I kind of realized that I really need to reskill or upskill, depending on how you look at it. So there's this wonderful website called teachyourselfcs.com. Um, and they have like a bunch of these recommendations for what are considered canonical, like textbooks and resources. Um, so there's a list of books they recommended, uh, computer networking, the algorithm design manual, structure interpretation, structure and interpretation of computer programs, um, thinking high level, writing low level, crafting interpreters, computer systems, sorry, they're all on like this table right here. Um, so it was just a recognition that like, okay, like I, I, I need to have my fundamentals and I also need to understand kind of how sort of technology works right now um, in order to continue like growing in my career as an engineer. As, as a data scientist, I, I feel like I feel like I probably could have gone away with not hitting a lot of that stuff for at least a few years. But as an engineer, I feel like it, it will actively kind of like hurt my career pr progression if I don't. I know that's a lot how of much that, how, how much does that kind of depend on the team that you build around you? I mean, this kind of throws back to what I was saying earlier, right? Like it, for, for me, for example, I, I yeah, I'm, I'm directing more towards the ML engineering role because I've got a background with the systems design and thinking of, you know, uh, very weird and complicated systems, right? That's what you get when you deal with robotics. So I'm more comfortable with that than with the deep maths of, you know, being a pure data scientist. So I'm erring towards that ML engineering side myself. Um, and like you said, you know, I'm like way <laughs> behind in all of this stuff. So I'm trying to crash course everything at the same time. But it's part of building the team around us. So right now I'm working a team of three and that's letting me, basically there's this multiplicative effect, right? Where we've got one person who's very deeply into the mathematics of the data science side of it. And then combine that with my more systems thinking kind of approach together, we're able to both of us do whatever level of specific model development that we need to do, whatever level of, uh, you know, systems design that we need to do. And it's not just that, oh, he does all the data science and I do all the systems thinking. We swap and trade skills in that manner. So as a team, you're kind of building and, you know, you've got to build out a team in a way that I don't need to be an expert at the data science and the modeling part of it in order to do it, but I can get the support where I need to, where that's actually important, right? So again, like, it, and maybe I'm, I'm lucky and I'm in a company and a team where there's a bit more of license for fluidity, um, but yeah, that that's pretty essential, I think. Yeah, like it's a similar deal. Like we have people on our team who are like Docker Kubernetes Jenkins experts. And so in some ways, like, because they are experts, it allows me to take the extra time to like go through the materials and like uh, upskill. Uh, because if we didn't have that diversification of skills, like we have some people who are what you would call sort of technical specialists. Like they are very deep in building the tools, um, big brains and years of experience. Um, and like, literally they can look at like a, an error that spit out in my log and they can go like, oh yeah, I think that like it was, uh, and then just quickly Google search and go like, yeah, I think basically their newest release of PIP like broke it. And I'm like, oh, that's, you, you, you got that out of all of that, like air, all that red, that's what you got all of it. And then you have some people on the team who are uh, like much more like, I think strategic and they like planning, they like figuring out um, like where do the different projects and initiatives fit? And they tend to speak very well with our adjacent teams. 
Um, and, and then you have people like me where I'm like, oh, well, okay. Like I gotta, gotta figure out everything, <laughs> you know, but like, that's what having like a nicely balanced, like portfolio of skills, like on your team kind of enables. Mm. And it does depend on like, what is the core function of the team? Um, you know, like what's kind of the North star that your team is providing, I will say, because if your North star is like, um, meant to be like more internal business facing, uh, for example, you're, you're trying to drive strategic business decisions. Um, having a bunch of engineers that are really deep into like the CS fundamentals, it might, it might help, but frankly might be better just to find someone who loves living in the strategy and analytics space. Um, mm. but if you are, for example, you're building custom tooling for like challenging problems, like self-driving cars, uh, that you can't just use like the current abstractions that are available. You really want to invest into those like deep, deep, like technical skill sets and people with those skill sets. So. Yeah, there's, I think there's this, um, we've kind of overfit across the last century. And this is an ongoing hypothesis of mine personally that I've been trying to test out in the last five years uh, that in the previous century, we kind of overfit on this idea of the, the master of, one trade as you know there was always that saying you know jack of all trades master of none uh, you know you don't want to be the jack of all trades I, I think there is room now to expand that thinking a little bit right if you go back to like i'm talking like socrates level eras right some of the greatest thinkers were polymaths and you don't even have to go that far back right you go back to newton he's a polymath right these guys were writing papers in many many different fields uh, I'm actually reading a book on called Polymath by, by Peter Hollands, which is all about mastering multiple disciplines, right? So there's, I think there's this resurgence of ideas saying that you can have people who, you know, wheeler dealers that can deal with the business side of things, can deal with strategic, can deal with a little bit of technical depth, right? There, there might be value in having a balance of, like you said, technical specialists that can deliver that code value, but can think strategically and, you know, uh, work outside of that team. And this is where we've got to move beyond having, oh, I'm trying to hire this one rock star data scientist that's going to solve my whole business, right? So it, it's kind of leading me to this thought that is data science inherently, from a business analytics perspective, inherently better as something that you would uh, hire out to a company or to like a consulting service, as opposed to necessarily build in-house because it's a difficult team to build in-house, right? So can you leverage it better as a consulting team? And go for it. And also, uh, Coastal, can you share a link to that book or, or just type the name of that book out? Yeah, not to um, go out too far down the rabbit hole of the of the mastery versus a jack of all trades thing. But I, that's something I think about quite a bit. And I think in 2021 or in today's age, the composite uh, specialization is something that rules supreme. So it's not, I'm not the best at this individual thing. Like, let's just take like data science, for example, right? Like I am probably not even like a 75th percentile data scientist, right? But if I combine that with my abilities in content creation or video editing, I am probably a top like 5% person there. If you combine that with my sports analytics knowledge between those three domains, I'm like top 1% right? I'm, I might be the only one doing those things, but that also suggests that I'm, I'm unique and, and can create value in that way for someone who has those specific questions. And I think rather than really like narrowing down and specializing uh, in like a specific like 
technical domain, if we're spreading specialization over a composite group of unique things, we're able to create that differentiation and create the real value in that domain. So it's like we're becoming more specialized, but we're also less specialized because we have these composite skills. And it's like this, I wouldn't say it's a paradox, but it's like a weird, um, a weird refining of that thought process, right? And it doesn't fit neatly into a, a mastery mindset or a jack of all trades mindset. I think that the, the optimal skill set going forward is you're really good at like one or two things and you combine those with other things that you're pretty good at. And that makes you valuable to as many people as possible. Um, I, I still believe that like if, if you have some expertise, let's say you're in like an 80th percentile in something and you can combine that with a bunch of other 50th or 60th percentile skills, that gives you a lot of scale and a lot of specialization still to maximize on, on both of those things. So uh, maybe a little bit different way of thinking about it. Maybe I'm just rambling, but I, I just love that idea in general. I know uh, Harpreet and I have talked a lot about this too. Yeah. Uh, so like the rest of that quote, oh, uh, Jack of all trades, master of none, like the second half of it is oftentimes better than master of one. Um, so that's that talent stacking thing, right? You just, you know, be top 25% in a few different things, combine them in unique ways. And all of a sudden you're the best in the world at being yourself. Uh, yeah, that's, you know, kind of the direction you want to want to head towards. Um, Greg, great conversation kicked off there. Uh, let's head to Mark's question. Yeah, I actually think it ties in really well to, to the previous conversation. Um, I'm just more so thinking forward kind of like, you know, next career moves, um, not necessarily a new, new company, but more so like where, what type of data role do I want moving forward? Um, and specifically moving away from, from data science. Um, I'm realizing that I love being IC, I love being technical, but like analytics and like machine learning model building just as a career just does not, does not provide me joy. I like it for side projects, but for, for the job itself, I, I find it to be way too reactive for my liking. And so trying to think like, what's uh, brainstorming? I'm stuck between data engineer and ML engineer um, as roles, but they're two different paths. So just trying to choose one is go go for it. And so essentially, uh, you know, just want to brainstorm, like what, what are some career paths beyond data science that really lean into that technical side? That's a great question. And it's something I was thinking about earlier today too. It's like, uh, like I can write code, I get done, but like, I don't really enjoy sitting there writing code all day long or doing like grunt work type of stuff. Like I like kind of architecting a solution, right? Like if I could just talk to like some junior level data scientists, like, all right, cool. We got this data. Here's some things that we need to try to do with it. And here's kind of a blueprint and path of things that we should do. Get it right up to the experiment point. You do all the coding up to there and I'll take it from there. I'll do the, uh, I'll do the experiments and, and find the best fit model and evaluate it and stuff. So like, that's kind of, I was having that same thought earlier today. I was like, man, like, I enjoy data science, but I don't enjoy all aspects of it, particularly grunt work coding type of stuff. So I'm very keen on hearing uh, other people's responses here as well, but slowly and surely people are uh, dropping off. I'd love to hear from, uh, let's, uh, let's go to Ken and then Greg on this, and then anybody else wants to jump in, uh, Mikiko. Um, and do I yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think 
Mark, that's a really good question. I am neither a data engineer or an ML engineer, so I don't think I can provide um, too much insight on that front. I will quick, say... Also, it can be ML engineer or data engineer, just the ones I'm aware of, but you can think of like some wild other one that I'm not aware of too. It doesn't have to be those two, two buckets. Yeah, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I, I do like a self-assessment of uh, about well, once a month, sometimes I push it off to once a quarter where I evaluate what, where I think my strengths are. Uh, but I also evaluate my enjoyment of certain activities. I try and like audit essentially everything I do over the course of a week or a month. And I rate how much I enjoy doing those things. I rate how much uh, like effort it takes, how much energy it takes, a, a lot of different ways that I frame the same thing. And then I try to match that to the roles that I'm currently in. Like what roles would allow me to do, to make, to be as efficient and effective as possible while it not feeling like work for me? Like the, the more I'm realizing this, like let's take the content creation that I do, right? I find that nowadays making YouTube videos for me is a little bit harder than, than filming podcasts. I, I love talking with people. It's something that feels completely effortless with, for me. When, when I have a conversation, I just, I, you know, like connecting with another person, it's dynamic. It's, it's, a, it's something that flows rather than making a video. It's pushing, like it's, it's static. I am doing all of the delivery, right. And thinking about, okay, like I still enjoy both, but how do I slant things? So I'm doing more of one of those other things. And that's something I have complete control over. Right. But the next logical step, if it was my domain or my work is to say, okay, what types of activities or, or uh, responsibilities can I pick up that would flex those exact, exact skills? And you don't, you know, if you love your company and your management team is receptive, in theory, you should be able to like just evolve your role to doing more of the things that really feel effortless to you and doing less of the things that you find tedious or, or struggling through. And rather than looking at it as like, hey, I'm going to switch, it's like, I'm going to take what I'm currently doing and slowly progress it towards this other thing. And you can, you know, you can get a new title, you can do whatever you want. But, um, you know, that that's how I would generally approach that situation. Not, not like clear cut advice or anything like you probably wanted, but that's sort of my, my two cents on that front. Greg? Yeah, so I, I definitely like your, your framework. And um, for me, it's about... Uh, more uh, where do you see yourself sitting in an organization? There, I like to think about it in, uh, in terms of uh, front end of an organization or back end of an organization. And you can have different positions inside of it. Most of the time, the back end, you're building products or you're taking care of infrastructures that serves or enables uh, or enable internal teams. So do you want to be a builder of these infrastructures do you want to build products that serve internal teams versus do you want to build products that serve external customers? So there are multiple places you could go. You could become a product in, uh, product manager. Uh, you can be a systems uh, um, architect uh, that, that builds, you know, these systems that looks at the big overview of these ML pipelines and uh, kind of like an internal consultant in uh, uh, around these systems. Uh, there are definitely different things, but the first thing is, where do you want to be? Because you could be a solutions architect for, um, you know, external customers, or you could be a solutions architect internally that are looking at ecosystems 
that are enabling internal teams. Uh, so, you know, uh, if you want to go beyond just the data science of things, uh, you'd have to take a look at uh, where you want to sit inside of an organization and see what kind of uh, problems they're solving, what kind of tools they have to solve these problems, and then how can you apply your skills, which is mostly around data science, to solve these issues. And then you, you, you can figure it out, right? Most important, you're young. Try as much as you can because time is your best commodity, man. You're better placed than most people right now. And the time to try different things until you figure out what you like, what you don't like is now. Let's uh, let's go to Makiko, then Costub, and then like, yeah, just that that's Google data science solution architect. That is an actual job title. Uh, there's a bunch of job postings on this. Really interesting to look into. Um, let's go to Makiko and then Costub. And then if anybody else has questions, let me know. Uh, not a lot of people joining us on LinkedIn. Um, not a lot of questions coming in here. So this might be the... Uh, yeah so when i had like the so i, I talked to like my past director because my team so to complicate the plot my team mln got moved into the data eng org so to complicate the plot or um or data the data services but it includes a bunch of data engineers so um but when i had the talk so i had a conversation with two directors my current director and the past director um, who you know is still in the company, but whose team I or I moved out from under. Um, and one director basically said, you know, think of it in terms of where you fit along sort of the um, spectrum from like data from tech specialist to um, tech lead to tech strategist. Because even within an engineering organization, um, there is a really wide variety of work that people do. Um, you have some people. And, and this is true even at like certain levels, like for example, you can have a staff or a principal engineer who like is a tech specialist, like they build all the tooling inside, they do the research, they, you know, um, whatever. But you can also have principal engineers who are like mostly tech strategists. So they're focusing on like, you know, what, what tool stack do we incorporate? Um, you know, if, for example, if you're going cloud like AWS or GCP, you know, and let's say you start out in a monolith, you know, like what, which of those services do we, um, do we invest in and do we move out of? Um, uh, how do we sort of communicate the like company's strategic positioning um, to like external users or, or something? So there's even within engineering, there's a very, very, and the like technical contributor route, there's a wide variety of work that you could do. Um, for me personally, I don't see myself as a tech specialist, frankly. Uh, to some degree, I kind of feel like I started out in my engineering career a little bit too late. Um, like really only within the last two years. And I'm like, you know, older than 30 now. So in some ways I kind of feel like if I had wanted to go like the Jeff Dean route, I probably should have started studying computer science in undergrad, um, which I'm fine with. Uh, for me personally, I see myself as like more of a tech lead, tech strategist. I'm very, very interested in how to design systems. And I'm very interested in like the trade-offs between um, when do we use some solutions versus others? And I love building products. That's what it comes down to. I really hate getting into the nitty gritty of like, what libraries do we use? Like debugging stuff. It, it's, it's just a necessary evil to me. Um, I'm not like in love with trying to come up with new languages, using new languages, tr trying out new languages all the time. For me, all my work and all my investment is, can I build stuff? 
that people can interact with, whether they're internal or external. And so for me, that it it makes sense to align with like the tech lead and tech strategist. But very similar similarly, like my other director basically was like, you know, said you should be like in people management because they were like, you have an innate ability to lead people and to get them to do things even when they don't want to do it. So, and his advice was very similar. He's like, you're young. Like, he's like, feel free to bounce in between stuff, like try different things. Cause at some, some points you're going to want to like do technical projects, but other points in time, you know, it's like, you're not, he's like, you're not going to want to deal with that bullshit. You're going to want to like, you know, help enable other people and other teams to do really big stuff. Because at the end of the day, really, really big, like moonshot goals, you have to have teams. Like maybe you have like three to five 10x engineers if you can afford it. I mean, uh, but realistically, if you want to get big stuff done, a lot of times you're not building it yourself. You're you're going to have like a team. And so for, for some people, they have more joy, it seems like, in rather than saying like, I built this feature myself, they can say, I built this platform or solution. Or I, I not I built I helped enable the you know deployment and the the creation of this um, solution by gathering like the best people around me and like you know making sure that they are developed so um, yeah so in terms of like in terms of the data ML and kind of ML ops kind of thing to be honest it seems like it's the division is a little less there's not as much of a division as you would think. If you develop skills along the ML and GML offside, it probably you can transfer a good amount of it over to the data end side and vice versa. Um, but yeah, go step, go for it. And, uh, uh, I guess. Sorry, go on. Oh no, I was gonna say, and uh, uh, would love to get Ben's input on this uh, as well. So Mark, if you just want to type out the uh, the question he had in the in the chat, so Ben is uh, keyed up on it. Uh, go step, go for it. Yeah, look, I mean, I'm still trying to figure out exactly what my path is as a as an ML engineer, robotics engineer, computer vision. I don't even know, right? But like, so it's, for me, it's, I could go down a technical specialist route, but I know that I also have some skills and enjoyment in A, strategic thinking, and B, thinking about systems at a higher level, and as well as, you know, just leading a team. Like we, we seem to constantly talk about there's two kinds of data scientists. One, which is, you know, your deep technical specialist and your business strategist, right? What about the people leaders? As we start talking more and more about teams, you need people that can lead people, but still understand data science, right? Like the best product managers I ever worked with in, in, when we were building like, you know, electromechanical devices were electronics engineers who understand the pain that you know, the mechanical team or the electrical team are going through. So your people managers and your project managers, there's all of these different roles that are coming into the um, in, into the ML, I guess, ecosystem, right? Development ecosystem. And really, we, we tend to overcorrect and kind of say, hey, I am this career because this is my like training. This is my degree in this and that, right? But that's not the sum of all parts, right? The sum of all parts is, what are your other experiences? What are, what are the other things that you've done and your natural skills, your, just your personal tendencies? So like, I can't remember who, I think it was Ken that said he, he really analyzes his skills as a whole, right? You got to come up with that Venn diagram. And, and it's something that I'm, I revisit that at least once a year, if not once every six months, and really look at what's changed since the last Venn diagram. Um, and that's how I'm hoping that that'll inform me going forward in my career and where I can head with that. Um, 
it's a way. I don't know if it's the right way. I'm not at the end of the path yet, not even close. But um, yeah, it's really about understanding where all of that fits, right? So there's more than just, hey, I need to be the technical specialist or I need to be this particular thing. That that comes back down to that pigeonholing thing, right? We need to be a bit more fluid. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, like that, like this rule I got now at Comet, how it just kind of seems to coincide so nicely with kind of my specific knowledge and what it is that I'm interested in, right? Like, like. I'm not necessarily like the business data scientist type of guy. Like I don't really care about reporting to stakeholders and doing business stuff and stuff like that. I care more about the creative aspects of data science, building models, doing interesting stuff, educating people, communicating data science and, and things like that. Uh, and I seem to have found myself a position where I get to build data science models, write about them, create presentations, communicate, educate, and do a lot of creative work while still being closely connected to like data scientists and data science work and it you know i guess try to find opportunities like that so roles like this are coming up if this is kind of like the path you're interested in like and and they tend to be um mostly on growth teams or marketing teams like um i guess like advocate is, is you know product evangelist ml advocate or developer advocate things like this um but yeah i mean it, it's all about just finding interesting intersections of your unique skill sets. But Ben, go for it. Love to hear from you on this. On the Mark's comment, career path beyond data science. Yeah. Um, okay. So I'll, I'll start with something negative and end with something positive. So the neg- negativity is jobs are not charities. Jobs are not free. And ha- having paid payroll, you, you need to have a multiplier. You need to have a multiplier value. But the positive side is you can actually make up your job. Like you can make up your job as long as that's true, as long as there's a multiplier. There's actually... Attribution is true of every department, sales, marketing, and data scientists. Really good data science leaders know their attribution. And, and I see this firsthand. Really good data science th- leaders will say, this is my attribution for my entire org this year. And it's a number with a dollar sign. And so um, my first year joining Data Robot, I don't think I coded for like a full year, which is maybe a little weird because I, I came from very high performance, deep learning, coding all the time every day. Um, so really it's just kind of aligning your passions. And I think for some of the people here on the call, they like podcasting, they like speaking, they like blogging, they like writing. So just, I, I think there's always going to be an intersection of AI with whatever your core passion is and, and whatever you do, it just find something unique and really push into it. And you can make up a role that we've never heard of, but it has some AI flair to it. As long as there's attribution to that role, which can be there for so many reasons i yeah anyway i i loved greg's comment on jar brain jar brain has been breaking my brain lately anyway yeah it's funny lawrence maroney over at google he's i think he's one of like the lead tensorflow advocates or something i, I forgot what exactly how high up he is but like you know some people i've seen at especially like at google or amazon where they're like developer advocates they have some of the coolest jobs because like they're in like they're it seems like their entire public time is they use like either amazon or google's tools to build cool shit and go look at all the cool shit you can build using these tools they do a bunch of projects and tend talk about how cool the the tool and technology is publish like content around it but they, they they literally get to see projects from like end to end. I feel like in some engineering organizations, you kind of just live in like one of the stages of the pipeline. So if you're QA, you just QA everything. If you're 
ML end, you live in some part. If you're data end, you live in some part. But a lot of like the developer advocates or even like the um, evangelists, it just, they can actually take a project to production end to end. They have that creative autonomy to do that because they're there to showcase like their company's tools. So to me, I'm like, if I, if I get to the point where I'm like, oh, I just don't want to even anymore. I feel like that would be such a cool place to try out. It's cool, uh, such a cool role to try out. Um, yeah. Well, maybe to lean into that real quick, Makiko, I've been I've been teasing other people in the data science community because I'll I'll send them a text and say, data science is hard. I'm smoking cigars in DC or like I'm drinking wine over here. But the this is always focused on like partnerships, right? So getting back to attribution, there are so many interesting. So we talk about selling like peer-to-peer networking, but there's also like business networking where it's quite complicated. We're trying to prioritize these partnerships. And so for me, that is really, really fun, but it has data science, like data science is all over that. Like how does a partnership actually work? How does it make sense? What are the integrations? But these all started at a human level. Um, I will say like one of my, one of the perks I enjoyed working as like a data scientist on like the customer success side was getting all the perks of the customer success team, right? And especially too, if you're like a, a, a client facing data scientist, right? Like they'll bring you to the meetings, they'll bring you to the kickoffs, they'll bring you to the sales summit. Um, you know, you, it, sometimes that's stressful too, like in, um, especially like technical sales, right? Um, because if you're, oh, actually one place I've heard people go to is like sales engineering. That is actually one place mm-hmm. I, I know some data scientists go to, they go to sales engineering, um, or like customer customer success engineering, because they like the like nine to five aspect of it, and or uh, a lot of times when they do work, it's like around the end of the quarter or like, you know, so it's around like the sales peaks. But their entire thing is still once again like building stuff, making it look cool. Um, but working as a data science as a as a data scientist on the customer success side was really fun. Um, yeah, I think I went to. I got flown out to like Boston, Vegas, Switzerland, um, could have gone to, I think England and Italy for Autodesk, but I just didn't want to. I didn't, I, well, yeah, I didn't want to. So Makiko, we should push a trend that hashtag data science is hard. And anytime you're like drinking wine or an African safari, if, it, if it's tied to the job, that would be hilarious. Just, I wonder what the junior data scientist would think. Wait a second. That's not data science. Oh yeah, that I did that when I went to like Tel Aviv for work. That was great. The the the, the beach on Tel Aviv, going to the cafes, like every on Instagram. I, yeah, that was fun. This is this is super helpful advice, and also for context, a lot a lot of my work and like things I try to go for is just like I view it as training for the next time I try to do my run at like a venture back business and trying to build one. And so a lot of my focus now is like, how can I build really quick and iterate really quick? Because that's like the furthest I've gotten really in like trying to do approach those startups. But the other end of it is like, all right, cool. Once you build it, get funding and you grow a little bit, you need to build a team. And that's a huge gap in my learning. Um, But I also hate the idea of management. So um, still still in the learning phase. But yeah, that's why I'm, I'm really focused on just like building cool shit really fast. I'm a big fan of startups early on to only hire principal talent. So you actually don't have to manage. You hire people that know their domain, they're experts at it. And that's awesome. If you have to mentor and manage, then for an early startup, that is awful. Yeah, just kind of that's jump comforting. Like, 
just kind of jumping on top of that I, I know that i'm i'm kind of i'm not like fresh but i'm also not n- nearly you know at principal talent levels right so my focus right now is actually on on scaling right i'm, I'm trying to work in in a team right now that i joined a few months ago where we're working on scaling data science models so if I can build my niche across the rest of that data pipeline, there's so many people focusing on how can I develop and and do these uh, proof of concepts really quick. Um, there is still this gap in how do we scale that into a large scale product, right? There's not many people who know how to do that. So that's something that I'm trying to learn. It's a different set of skills that's within the data, um, you know, uh, manifold of jobs and, and, and technical skills. But I, I kind of wanted to latch on something that Ben mentioned a bit earlier. Uh, you said basically, like end of the day, it's about having that um, attribution, right? That dollar tag figure of what value you're providing. Like, I don't know if I'm calculating that always the right way. How do you go about processing that and assessing what's the real value you're providing? Uh, some things, it's a hard science, and then it blurs into the gray. And so, sales is super easy. Like they they can have attribution marketing as well. But there's things like brand equity or data science. If you do some innovation, it ends up in the product. What is the value of that? And and I think what you see in all these domains, there is a science where people are trying to hammer all the way down to hell on what that what the value is. And so if you go ship a feature, a very mature product would actually know how many customers are using it. Was it mentioned in Salesforce as a differentiator during the sell? And people attribute it back. I'm not saying that's easy. Um, a lot of companies really struggle but, right, with but- that. But, but it's also not just that I'm the only person creating that feature, right? I'm part of a large yeah. team creating feature. So, uh, you know, how you you got to assess what's your, like you kind of have to look at it at a, I mean, I've started to look at it more at a level of how are the things that I'm doing amplifying the, the speed at which my team can deliver that feature, which delivers this dollar figure value to the company, right? Yeah. And and conversely, what am I doing outside of this specific role, which is scaling this, this you know, pipeline? Uh, what are the other things I'm doing that add value to the company as well? Yeah. And that's a bit more of a mixed pot to balance. (laughs) Yeah. I think one of the general themes is how close are you to revenue generation in long-term? Like if there's company cuts or pushbacks, it doesn't matter what role you're in. You kind of have a sense of how close you are. So, so if you can't like spit out a number immediately, the number should always be greater than one. You should always have, you should always feel confident that there is a true multiplier to what you're doing. Um, but some people, they are in roles where they're very far away from revenue, and, and that just becomes more problematic. I think I'm, I maybe I'm different. I, I think it's I like being as close to it as I can be, but also I like blue sky innovation that is maybe falls in the brand equity bucket, which is very messy. It it's so hard to assign yeah. value to brand equity. I, I guess the other side is that maybe this is something that like younger data scientists like myself need to be a little bit more aware of is what's the value? The Can you tell me the value of the product you're actually building, right? Like we should know that as a data scientist that, hey, we're building this, this piece of software. It's going to earn this many million dollars a year, right? Or is it a $100,000 project or a $50,000 project? If we don't know that, um, like I, th- I think that's a critical thing to understand the value you're providing. And that is something that a lot of these engineering projects, they actually do give revenue commits. So for the bigger strategic projects, they don't just say, we're going to go do this. It's important. They, they say, we're going to go do this. Here's a revenue commit. And if that revenue commit is not met, then they will, your name's attached to it. So 
And it's funny, those revenue commits, when you look at them, they're always nice big round numbers. <laughs> so it's like one, two, three. It's never like 200,000, 350 or like 2.6 million. Like it's not really a science, right? It's finger in the wind, but the, the accountability is there. It's usually divisible by five. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's usually divisible by five. Um, and I think too, like, so I would, so devil's advocate here, I would argue that if you have like, leadership that at all levels is very well aligned on what the north star is what the strategy is as an individual contributor you don't necessarily need to know what your like revenue contribution is in that if you, if um so for, okay so what you don't want in some ways is you don't want to be working on a sinking ship or like a fe a feature factory right because with a feature factory, you can have features that do bring in extra revenue, but it's like incremental. It's it's almost like you don't know if it's actually pushing the needle on anything. Um, it could be like an extra lift of like, okay, so for Amazon and Google level, right? Like an extra lift of 2%, that's a lot of money. <laughs> that's a huge amount of money. Uh, for a company that's doing 1 million revenue, uh, an incremental left of one to two to five percent, it might not be good enough, depending on like how expensive your engineering talent is. Um, so I feel like, but I think I think that's the hard part, right? Is that like at some point, especially as a company gets bigger, like you'll have teams which they are just for what reason they're working on this product, which someone knows it's going to get sunset in like the a year or two after it gets launched. Um, the engineers are not necessarily going to know it unless they are willing to kind of go up and go across and talk to the teams like next to them or, or well, I don't talk, like understand what the adjacent teams are doing and what the sort of like overall roadmap is and where do they kind of fit in that. And ideally, I feel like if you have like a really strong leadership um, and it's perfect communication all the way down, um, most people would be able to track that. But uh, I haven't I've yet to see that, frankly. Uh, seems like it it falls apart at some level. Kind of a problem of scale, though, right? Like in a smaller team, like a mid-sized team, it's like you know forty to hundred people. Maybe that's very easily communicable, right? The moment you get to a few thousand people in a company, there's competing strategies because you've got multiple business opportunities that you're chasing. You got you know different business opportunities that are like one's already you're already milking a cash cow here, but you're still you got a rising star that you're developing that. It's just competing strategies, right? So it's hard to communicate that across a few thousand people. Mark, hopefully that was uh, some good insight for you there. Um, I want to go to to, to Greg because Greg had a question for Ben. Um, so then we'll go for to, from Greg. Then we'll go to Gina's question. Then we'll call it a uh, a day after that. Thank you, everybody on LinkedIn. I'm sorry I can't get to all of you guys' questions, but hopefully you guys are enjoying this. Yeah, it's a it's a quick question about jar brain. Like if you've seen any. Interesting answers in your post about this one, um, about that concept. If you want to uh, explain to the audience what uh, what you're working on there, yeah, I AGI I think is really fascinating for anyone in AI. It's kind of like this this I, I love how AI has the intersections of psychology, neurology, philosophy. Like it's kind of nutty that it all, or you know, you want to understand your life's purpose. Like all of this kind of like blends in this really weird point. And people talk about singularity and AGI. And the Turing test was the first one. But the thing I really don't like is you have like GPT-3, like you have these massive neural networks that will train more data than humans could ever learn. And, and I like to focus, focus on 
randomly initialized a AGI, what, what could it do? And so the, what Greg is mentioning is I posted on LinkedIn and I, I proposed this problem. I said, called it the AGI game. And I said, look, if I could rebirth you, go back in time, you're not going to learn to speak English. I'm going to rebirth your brain in a jar and you can consume a video feed. That's it. This video feed is going to run for 25 years. I have an AGI. It's literally smarter than you. Like that is a fact. It is smarter than you. What can it do 25 years later that you can't? And I think that's an interesting discussion. Like obviously things like search would be very trivial. Humans, our memories aren't quite good. If I asked you, if I showed you a frame or a video sequence from three years ago, you would have a hard time knowing exactly in time where that was. Maybe you could place it. Maybe you couldn't. Um, so I just think it's a really fun discussion. There were some interesting questions. I think Greg kind of put me on the spot a little bit where I was trying to recall who, who had the most interesting answers. I know Greg, you responded. I, and I liked your, some of the insights that you had. I'm trying to recall. I, maybe Greg, since you're on right now, what I search would be top of mind. Um, predicting would be top of mind. AI is anticipating what's going to do, but just your human brain does it too. Like, you're anticipating what I'm about to frog. Like your, your brain is anticipating what I'm going to say next. And we're pretty good at it, but AGI would be a little bit better at anticipating what is next. So if I had to plot intelligence, intelligence is not singular, right? Like you have different dimensions of intelligence, emotional intelligence, et cetera, et cetera. But if I had to pretend like it was this continuous scale, think of it as being plotted on time and space, your comprehension of time and space. If an AGI is smarter than you can predict further in the future what someone might do or what might happen than you could, but it could also comprehend space better, the things around understanding what might happen. But I like that problem that I brought up because this AGI is not allowed to interact with the environment. And so it's actually putting AGI in the worst possible position to learn. Um, I don't know. I'm just curious how anyone reacts to that because people always freak out about AGI. It'll become infinitely smart in a month. And I'm like, yeah, that's fine if it can do stuff, but what would it do if it literally can't? Your jar yeah. brain sitting next to the AGI jar brain. So you're, you're, it's kind of like you're exposing AGI to, to, to only that environment, right? That even AGI itself is constrained to yeah. whatever it sees on that video through the yeah. years. And we'll be able to apply brute force to predict in a longer horizon than, 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 the, than the human brain, right? Uh, our long short-term memory is not reliable to perform those tasks. In this case, AGI will be a little bit smarter uh, or much smarter, but there are some other things that you know humans experience that AGI this? is not aware of. Will yeah. the AGI have an ego where if somebody in the kitchen drops a glass of water, my human brain might take it personally, like, oh, this fucker's just fucking with me, dropping a glass of water because I can't. What will the AGI like, think? Right. I think with right. that limited input, yeah. it, it's really hard to have self-awareness. Like you can't look in the mirror, you can't touch your face. So you, even as a human brain in a jar, you're just kind of anticipating what's next. Like, oh, here's the humans again. You actually don't even know you're a human. Um, if I could rebirth you in a jar. I, I, it's funny because people keep coming up with new Turing tests. I don't know if you guys have seen some of these. They're like, oh, the Turing test failed. So the new one is this. And I'm like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? I think one of the Turing test options out there is the new Turing test is AI will be able to comprehend anything in the sequence of videos. And I'm like, that is the dumbest thing ever because I can brute force train. We will brute force train in the future. And then everyone will celebrate. We passed the Turing test because you trained on like a gazillion videos. So it's, I hate the parlor trick. I don't want a parlor trick. 
I just want to simplify it to the simplest use case and work backwards. Let's actually talk about what this thing would do. If you can talk about what it'll do, you can actually talk about how you'd build it. So if so, it would have, yeah. I have a quick question. So if, for example, to, to, to a point, Harpreet, I come in the kitchen, I drop something on the floor because I'm mad versus I made a mistake. I think the AGI will see that differently. We'll take that as two events of dropping something on the floor as a data point, just like it, just as it is versus a human brain would say, okay, there's a why behind it, right? Maybe the human brain will have more intuition into guessing whether the person is in a bad mood versus good mood. But now I just heard you say, even the brain doesn't know it's a human brain. Now yeah. that brings a little bit more complexity to it now. Um, so, yeah, well, it, it is, you can give examples where you could, um, the example I throw out that the, the, the general AGI community maybe doesn't talk about that much is, for that, for those two systems, if I come down there at night because you can't see, and if I put a picture upside down, or if I shrink the fridge, or if I if I do something, if I change a number on the microwave, now the nine's not there. It's not there. AGI is going to notice it immediately. As soon as it comes on, bam! The novelty's there. AGI is oh, something's different. The yeah. human would too, but the human is more likely to miss subtle oh. pixel level changes where AGI would immediately get it something's different like the human consciousness is a filtration mechanism right like we mm -hmm. filter out more than we take in that's otherwise we just, just wouldn't be able to handle it all right so the machine wouldn't right like the machine handle everything process everything right so yeah i don't know where i was going with that but we filter everything i mean out. we have to that doesn't that kind of filter into the main main issues of AGI, right? You're talking ability to represent the world at the same kind of fidelity that that we do in our brains. Like we've got the the kind of sensing, uh, like the sensing resolution, effectively, for lack of a better word, right? To be able to construct these high fidelity maps of the world around us in our brain, right? Like in in the field of robotics, that like the sensor challenges around that alone are starting to add up, right? Then you got the power consumption issue, right? Is sure they might be, AGI might be able to do things to greater levels of detail and attention than a human brain would over a long-term, short-term kind of inefficiency that we have built into us. But then where, where do we where do we come across this point where this is a case where AGI would really work because it's more uh, like power efficient than us? So it's all about intelligent, like efficient intelligence as well, right? And to your point, Ben, you're, you're right. It isn't like the latest Turing test that just, hey, can you do this task that's seemingly difficult for current day technology to do? But if you really want to know about a Turing test, you should be asking, can it, like Harper asked, can it develop a sense of ego in the philosophical sense of ego where you're saying, I identify myself, you know, a sense of identification, right? That, that's when you start getting these higher levels of thinking. And that's the difference that you see between like um, between lower level ego uh, creatures in, in, in the world. Like you see that difference between dolphins and monkeys and, you know, uh, right down to insects, right? There's different levels of ego representation and understanding of who I am as a, as a person, as a perceiver, as, as a human, we're able to see that we are this physical person, but then we're also this observer behind that, watching that physical person. And then we're an observer behind that, watching the observer, right? We can see these layers of abstraction and symbolic learning. So, and all of this, we do this taking what, 1800 calories in a day, right? 
so the significant challenge with something like AGI in my gut sense is how do we develop, how do we find those challenges that AGI would be apt for within the power constraints that it would just be unreasonable for us to just get humans to do it, right? And do we then boil it down so far that it's just turned into a more specific artificial intelligence and no longer considered really AGI? I, for the the power limits, I, I do like to go the opposite way and just gift it infinite memory and infinite compute just for just for the thought experience experiment because i think as you get into ag like here's a great example one milestone that would really impress me is to have an ai system that learns to speak english through experience like literally in your home um, you have a baby you have this agi system you talk to it you interact with it it's gonna be focus-based learning you'll smile you'll you give the same cues that it's it you're excited that it repeated some word if it can begin to learn the english and we actually know those different milestones with humans that is very impressive but the compute getting back to your compute efficiency i would argue to do that today the compute would be disgusting like it, it would actually kind of make you cry a little bit and, and there would still be a big question mark of whether or not that would even be possible be, because the the big thing that's missing is search search recall because you would actually have to do search recall on petabytes of data in 100 milliseconds because if I say hot dogs, you immediately, bam, you're, you're the AGI exploded that term out. The first time it heard it, one-shot learning, you talk about zero-shot learning. like, um, it, Yeah, so compute and memory already kind of hurt when you start talking about that example. But look, your brain, yeah, our mean, brains did it. You know, the brain's a miracle. The, the, the question in my mind is that, like, you're absolutely right. Like, I, I, I look at my niece, so look at any toddler right? You show them a really vague conceptual cartoonish drawing of a tiger, but then they understand every representation of a tiger, whether it's hand-drawn, a realistic sketch, a photo, a 3D model, they understand that it's a tiger. They, they, we, as a human brain, we do this symbolic learning, this representative learning that's inherently different to the experiential learning that we're seeing with most AI models these days, right? Like, I, I, I think, I don't know if that's a a, a construct that we we're missing, like a, a software layer that we're missing, or we're, we're missing some piece of this puzzle in terms of reaching that symbolic level abstraction. Um, and I think that's when we're going to start seeing a significant step up in the efficiency of learning, right? And that's going to start making these more general artificial intelligence systems more and more viable. And you bring those power costs down. You bring the uh, your ability to abstract out, like like you said. You, we're not going to hone in on that detail of a number nine. How do we get a machine to do that? Um, and then you get the philosophical question of should we be building that at all anyway, right? Should we not just let humans do what we're good at, which is those abstract learnings, and and augment us with these gen with these specific AI that can look at the detail that we miss every time? Um, yeah, I, I think. Cool. Yeah, I think the the transition you're going to see as we head there is uh, think of it as an incredibly useful AI. So AI systems that actually exist to make your life easier. And so they're constantly working to, like imagine an AI system that's cleaning the house and it finds a problem. Hey, this power outlet's broken. It's bringing it to your attention. And if you don't like it, it think of like the ring camera, false alarm. That is something the AI will quickly react to. It doesn't, it doesn't want to interrupt you unless it's actionable insight. And so, or, or the Mars rover actually being useful for 30 months without, or like, you know, for a year without human interactions. It's kind of these autonomous AI systems. They're not conscious. They're, it's not singularity. But you're going to see this natural trend in the next 10 years where 
AI is desperate to, to please you with actionable insights. And if it's overwhelming you, you will be upset and it will have some reaction to that. It doesn't mean it can't actually be sad, but it, it, I think that's a funny that's a funny dynamic that might exist in these smart homes where you begin an, interacting within them. And I think we've maybe we've talked about how that that could be ethically bad to personify AI. I think of like the AI therapist. So I come home, I'm talking to the home. My wife's mad at me. Why isn't your wife mad at you? I'm telling the home it's not alive. But if it has this personification, that could actually mess with me. It would definitely mess with kids. But it could mess with me where, uh, so I'm laughing, Greg, thinking about this, because think of this system actually be, kind of became tuned to my experience. And then there's a firmware update and it screws up my system. We would all laugh and say, oh, it's okay. Don't worry. You'll get the new initialized personal assistant. I would actually experience emotional loss because I have had, a, I have developed, does that make sense? Like I am developing an interactive relationship with my personal assistant who's adapting to me and it's been personified a year later, something screws up and I'm, it's not backed up. I will actually experience emotional loss as a human. And now what does that mean is yeah. So personification of AI is super problematic. Yeah. I heard it's something you're going to be mindful of. Like, like for me, uh, one of my favorite quotes from the year 2035 is uh, I told you so by Isaac Asimov. So you've got to be a little bit mindful of that. Interesting discussion for sure. I uh, sent a link right here in the chat um, from a video by uh, this YouTube channel called Pursuit of Wonder. Uh, name of the video is called Digital Psychosis. It's a, it's a very Kafka-esque uh, 12 to 15 minute video, which uh, plays on the metamorphosis plot line where you know how the guy woke up and was a cockroach. This guy woke up and was a computer. And it's kind of exactly what Ben's talking about. All he could do is sit in his room and has a camera and just observes things happening as a, uh, as a computer. And they're talking about how in the background, he has this program running that's uh, actually his base level of consciousness. It's pretty interesting. Uh, good 15-minute watch. Definitely give it a watch. Uh, it's also here on LinkedIn for you guys to check out as well. Um, right on, guys. Well, thank you very much for, uh, <laughs> for the conversation. Sorry, Arpreet. I feel like I always take things down no. the the rabbit hole of useless. No, I wanted you to go no, there, man. Don't be this sorry about that. Hey, man, this is this type of stuff I like. I mean, I just I enjoy hearing it and hearing other people talk about it. So. Uh, fun fact, if you put a nightshade over the AGI system in your kitchen, it actually can't learn to speak English, but neither can you. Because humans need focus-based learning. You actually need... Comp so like the that quote, you, you can't learn English listening to the radio. It's actually problematic for your brain. You can learn patterns, but you, you need the focus-based learning, uh, which is fascinating because you look at how kids learn a language. Everything's focus-based. Well, baby's tracking eyes. Of course it is because that brain is ready to, it's an overdrive to learn everything that you do, mm -hmm. which is so amazing because we even see this in the animal kingdom, um, empathy, emotional intelligence, like a baby hip hippo is very sensitive to behavior of adults and other hippos right out the gate. And so it's, and, and even your baby is sensitive to your novelty reactions. Oh, wow. Like you as a parent, you have a novelty reaction. Your baby is very like keened in on that, which I think is just so fascinating. No, it's true. Like I remember my kid said something yesterday and just made me chuckle and he just kept saying it. And then he kept saying it and saying it, making me laugh. And he was laughing while he was saying it too. Uh, it's cute. And my babies are crazy. Like, like 
like simultaneously like learning deep learning and then watching my kid grow up and just and doing the research and drawing the parallels between human intelligence and, and deep learning it's just so fascinating to see uh, in action uh well guys been an excellent discussion hopefully you guys tune in to the podcast released this week with eric oaken i got a few awesome stuff coming up in the next couple of weeks uh next week i am interviewing uh, live streaming with uh, Natalie Nixon. She wrote a book called The Creativity Leap. It's here somewhere. I'll be giving away a free copy of that book as well. She was kind enough to give me two copies of that book. Also speaking to uh, the data professor himself, uh, Mr. Channon, or Dr. Channon rather, on the 23rd. I'm speaking to Marcus Dusatois. He just sent me a new copy, a copy of his new book. Um, really excited about this. Uh, he also wrote the book, The Creativity Code. Uh, which I've talked about multiple times on this podcast, excellent book. So super excited to talk to him. He's a uh, professor of mathematics at Oxford, the Samini professor of uh, public education of science or something like that. So that is going to be exciting as well. Also got uh, a live stream happening with Danny Ma on the 28th and got a live stream happening with um, Dave Langer. And eventually I'll get to uh, all of my friends. We'll get to all of my friends. Ben will be on the show at some point. So will Tom, so will uh, all the friends. So I'm excited about uh, having all them on. Greg, you've already been on the show. I, I got Greg on the show before he was, uh, before he was famous. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here today. I appreciate you being here. Remember, my friends, you've got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big? Cheers, everyone. <laughs>